Good morning, everyone. Hope you are doing well. We are continuing in our series through the book of Galatians this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 1 verse 6, and we'll pick up there in a moment. And as you're turning there, I want to give a quick recap of some of the things that we talked about last week when we started the series. Uh, Paul, a well-known disciple of Jesus, an apostolic leader and church planter, is writing a letter to the churches in Galatia. And specifically in this letter to the Galatians, he's going to address the issue of legalism. As this Jesus movement begins to uh, explode across the known world, most people see that it's born out of Judaism. And in fact, it is a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish hope. And so it's very easy to assume in the first century that if you become a follower of Jesus, then essentially you're joining a sect of Judaism that's centered around Jesus and recognizes him as the Messiah. And if you're coming into Judaism, then it's very easy to assume that, of course, you should take on the Jewish customs and uh, even commit to following and observing the law of Moses as something that's central to everyday life. So not only is it easy to make that assumption, but then you have these people that Paul calls Judaizers, and they are coming into these new communities of Jesus followers and explicitly teaching that the law of Moses and the Jewish customs should be central to their life, and that in fact, they may be an essential part of salvation. So you have these uh, Jewish leaders coming in and teaching this explicitly, and many of these new emerging Christian communities are falling for this mistake or this illusion. And so Paul is writing to them rather forcefully, and he's urging them, he's compelling them to remove every ounce of the law from their view of salvation. Paul's going to write and say, hey, that's not how you were saved. You weren't saved by following the law. That has nothing to do with salvation. And in fact, you're standing before God right here, right now in this moment isn't based on the law of Moses or observing that. It's actually based on Christ alone. You were saved by Christ alone. That's how salvation works. But here now, by the grace of God in this moment, your righteousness before God, your standing before him is based on Christ alone. It's not based on law. It's not based on works. That's not how you were saved. And that's not what uh, becomes the basis of your standing before him. You have to throw the law out, create a clear line of demarcation between one and the other. This is a gift. Your salvation was a gift. Your standing before him is a gift. And ultimately, that's really good news. And it's good news for everyone. It's good news for every single human being. And that's the good news that we get to announce to the world, that, that salvation and righteousness are based on Jesus and not on observance to any sort of religious law. And though this is good news for every single human being alive today, the uh, counterintuitive truth is that this good news often isn't received 
as good news by many of the people who hear it. And in fact, as we carry this good news into a dying world, what we'll find is that that same dying world will often put pressure on us to abandon this uh, amazing, scandalous, beautiful message of God's grace that's embedded in the heart of the gospel. And so we're going to explore that tension this morning. We are picking up in Galatians 1 verse 6, and we're going to reread some of the verses that we covered last week and then add one new verse this week, which will be sort of the focus of our time this morning. Here's what it says. This is Galatians 1 verse 6. I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And here's our new verse. Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Though Paul carries into the world the best news that has ever been announced, the best news that creation and human beings have ever received, curiously, he is met with hostility. Uh, He is met with resistance. People slander Paul and his message. They work rather hard to undermine Paul, to undo uh, his labor and the work that he's put in, in establishing these new communities. Over the course of his ministry, Paul is resisted, he's slandered, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, he's he's beaten again, he's imprisoned again, uh, round after round of resistance, and he is pressured to compromise at every turn. If Paul really wanted this uh, gospel and this Jesus movement to explode across the known world, it would seem on the surface that the best thing to do would be to compromise a little bit, to adopt some of the Jewish laws and customs in order to appease the Judaizers. And, And it would be easy to say, hey, Paul, surely if you just give in a little bit, if you are willing to adjust your gospel, your euangelion, your royal announcement, and just tweak it a bit and adapt it to fit the cultural preferences of your day, surely this whole thing would run free and uninhibited. Uh, Surely Judaism itself would get behind you and aid in the spread of the gospel instead of resisting you uh, with determined bitterness at every turn. But Paul is unwilling to budge. 
He sees the weight. He sees the cultural pressure. He sees the power uh, that is all set against him and this cultural pressure that's being applied against him and his message. And yet, in light of all that, he still says, if anyone preaches to you a different gospel, a modified gospel, a, a compromised gospel, a watered down gospel, then it is really no gospel at all. There will be no compromise here. Am I trying to win the approval of human beings, Paul says, or of God? Well, it's not to win the approval of human beings. In fact, Paul says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And the irony is that 2,000 years later, not much has changed. We carry this same message, this scandalous message of God's grace into the world. And we too are met with resistance throughout the ages, right up to this moment. The gospel has faced opposition and resistance and a pressure to compromise. It would seem uh, that the world and its cultures seem naturally set against Jesus and this gospel that we are to announce into the world. In fact, John in his gospel account says it this way. He says, Jesus was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The creator of the universe stepped into creation, not to condemn the world or to judge the world, but actually to save the world through his son. And yet, as he steps into creation, he's met with resistance and rejection. That same world, that creation that came from him, turns on him. And so what we see in the life of Jesus is that he suffers these same things. He's, he's mocked. He's under, he's, they attempt to undermine him. He's rejected. He's beaten. Ultimately, he's crucified. And we could start by asking, well, why? Why would the culture of his day do that to him? And in one of the children's books where I was reading recently to our, our kids, it said, all Jesus did was love people, and yet he was put to death. And I think for children, that's okay to frame it that way. But really, when we look into it, the reason that Jesus is mocked and beaten and crucified, executed in public, isn't because he loved people. Uh, and it isn't in the objective sense, even that he was announcing the availability of the kingdom. The reason that he's mocked, beaten, rejected, and crucified is that he becomes a threat to the status quo. He becomes a threat to the culture in which he finds himself. And when we open up scripture, what we see is that from the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel forward, human beings in a fallen world have this ingrained tendency to set up their own vision for human flourishing, to set up their own vision for uh, how things should go. And within this uh, imagined vision, in this new world order that we try to create, 
what typically happens is that we elevate ourselves above God and uh, then we set up our own kind of cultures and systems and then we reject God when he comes to us. And we see elements of that in the Garden of Eden. I think it's even louder in the Tower of Babel. And as you move forward, what human beings do is we set up our own vision for society, how we'd like to run ourselves when it comes to politics and government and religion and all of it. And that becomes more important to us than receiving God himself. And, and that's the same today as it has been since the fall. Across the Muslim world, Jesus is seen as a threat to the status quo and the fabric of their society. When you look across the communist world, I think of China as a classic example. They've decided how they want to run themselves and their government. They have their own vision for human flourishing. And Jesus and the gospel become a threat to that. It's true in the Muslim world. It's true in the communist world. It was true at the Tower of Babel. It was true all across the Roman Empire. And it's true of most countries and cultures today when you look around the world. In fact, even in our own culture where we can still follow Jesus openly, um, we see the rise of these anti-Christian forces uh, that, that are, I think, getting louder in this moment that we're in. And really, we can trace a lot of the roots of that back to the Enlightenment in the 18th century, which was this huge uh, cultural moment uh, that has come to powerfully shape us and the Western world. And so when you look back into history, uh, for example, you see that out of the Enlightenment, we got materialism and we got rationalism. And if those uh, terms are unfamiliar to you, materialism uh, basically says that nothing exists but matter and its movements. The unseen is unreal. And not only has this mentality shaped a lot of the atheism and agnosticism that we see in our culture today, but it's also become the foundation for our obsession with material wealth and material possessions. Our worship of the material is based on uh, materialism. Uh, and in fact, this, this basic mentality of materialism becomes the foundation for all sorts of the things that we do in our culture. I think that it's deeply shaped the sex ethic of the Western world and kind of our cultural attitude of sexual promiscuity. Because if all that exists is material and all we have is this one material life and sex is purely a material act that feels good, if it's something without spiritual significance, then I'm left with no earthly reason not to sleep around and do whatever feels good in the moment because it's all material. And in a world that's just atoms and molecules with no spiritual significance, well, of course, I'm going to run around and do what seems best to me and what feels good in the moment. And so you can see that's just one example, but you can see the way that this basic assumption of materialism, that mentality has then shaped so much of the Western world. But the Enlightenment also gave birth to what we'd call rationalism. And rationalism says that there is a rational explanation for everything and a rational solution to every human problem. 
And this mentality, it sounds very logical, it sounds very reasonable, but in effect, what it has done is that it's poisoned the mind of the Western world against what we would call the supernatural. You cannot have a supernatural explanation for something. There must be a material, rational, almost scientific explanation for everything that occurs. The answer must be found in the natural laws and in random chance because those are rational and supernatural explanations are by definition not rational. They aren't real. They don't count within this worldview. And there is so much that we could say about materialism and rationalism and the way that they've shaped us and our world. But I just want us to get a snapshot of these worldviews because these worldviews then put pressure on uh, the gospel and they put pressure on us to compromise the gospel message. Since the Enlightenment began, there has been ongoing pressure on the church to kind of give up some of what's at the core of the gospel and the core beliefs that we've carried over time because they aren't rational in the eyes of the culture and they can't be explained in the way the culture wants them explained. So first off, if you think about this tension and this pressure between our host Western culture and the gospel that we carry, I think at the outset, one of the major tensions is that materialism says that what is unseen is unreal and God is unseen. Therefore, uh, God isn't real. He must be a figment of your imagination. He must be a, a crutch that you invented uh, to help yourself get through the brutality of the world that we live in. And not only is it a crutch, but in that worldview, it's, uh, it's an outdated crutch and it's a false crutch. And so the best thing that we could do is to just shake all of that off and get on with our lives. So you have the big picture sort of challenge to just out of hand, we're just going to assume what is unseen is unreal. I'm just going to reject all of that because it can't be proven. It's not rational, whatever the narrative is. But then even when you get down uh, into the forest and you start looking at specific things like Jesus physically healing people, well, that also gets rejected out of hand. Um, Jesus couldn't have healed people. He couldn't have raised people from the dead. He couldn't have raised, risen from the dead himself. Uh, our culture actually starts with the assumption that those things don't happen because they can't happen. You don't have a, a material, rational explanation for them, and so they are rejected. All we have in that worldview is the material, and we need a, a rational explanation. The supernatural doesn't exist. It's not a valid explanation for an event. And, and if all of that was a lot, I'm sorry, but here's the point. It creates, that worldview creates this tension in which there's so much pressure on the church to say that Jesus didn't actually heal anyone and therefore we shouldn't pray for physical healing or that Jesus didn't actually uh, rise from the dead because now we know that those things didn't happen. So apparently uh, we have to conclude 
he was just a good teacher and everything else that we don't like was just metaphor or the confused ramblings of some mystics who didn't truly understand how the world works. Of course, these things didn't happen because they can't happen. And in many cases, sadly, the gospel gets compromised in these areas. And you have churches and actually entire church movements that respond to that pressure through compromise. They're so eager to have the respect and the ear of the culture that they end up caving to that cultural pressure and essentially saying something like this. They say, right, we all know now with our modern intellects that these things don't happen. So if we can just water down the gospel a bit, cut out these parts that are causing everyone to stumble, these parts that are now embarrassing to us, then the church and the culture will get along great and we can get on with our lives. And in some sense, this is what the Galatians are facing. They're facing this uh, cultural pressure from the Gentiles and from the Greeks. And it's this pressure to, hey, could you water things down? Could you morph this message a bit? Could you shift your gospel um, so that we can all get on with less resistance? Let's remove the parts that the culture doesn't like or that the culture doesn't find palatable. Let's see what we can do to shift this message to appease the powers that be and uh, help everyone just get along. Uh, that's the temptation in the first century for the churches in Galatia and elsewhere around the known world. And in fact, that's always been the temptation. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And again, Paul says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What's he saying? He's saying we come with this message that absolutely confounds the wise. It frustrates the intellectuals. And ultimately, those who claim to be intellectuals, who claim to be wise but reject the gospel message, they will ultimately stand before God and see that their wisdom and their intellect was ultimately foolishness. That's what's going to happen at the end of the age. But in the meantime, they'll sit from their place of power and privilege and they will um, assume, even proclaim, that the gospel message is a foolish message. It will appear to them to be foolish and alien and backwards. It doesn't line up with their way of thinking. It will fall uh, outside the bounds of their worldview. And because the two are in tension, there's always going to be this pressure to change. Uh, am I now trying to please people, Paul says, or am I trying to please God? Because if I was trying to please people, I would have already changed my message. I, I would have shifted things by now. No, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I am going to live to please God alone. 
And as the church, we have to hear Paul's call to faithfulness. Uh, We can see that in the last few centuries and even in the last few decades, the ways in which the church and church movements have been uniquely pressured from uh, the Western world and have, in many cases, uh, compromised under that pressure. Uh, you, You kind of have this sense of some churches saying, okay, maybe you're right. Perhaps Jesus actually didn't perform miracles. Uh, Perhaps he didn't actually raise from the dead. We are struggling to defend that under the rules of rationalism and materialism. From an intellectual standpoint, we don't know if we can justify that, but he was still a good teacher. So we're going to take his teachings, his sort of his, his moral teachings, his sense of justice, and we're going to carry that into the world because surely the world still needs wise teaching and wisdom and this sense of so- social justice. And so we'll move on with that. But in the process, they compromise the gospel. Uh, and in fact, Paul warned us that the cross is foolishness in the eyes of the world and it continues to be that way today. Uh, in, in the post-enlightenment world, we, we aren't convinced that we have a sin problem. Like we, we kind of challenge that basic assumption. But even if we do, under the rules of rationalism, we're convinced that the solution to that sin problem must be something very simple and rational and within our grasp. It's something that we can do as human beings. And so it it must be education, it must be better medicine, it must be better wealth distribution, whatever it is, but it's surely it's something we can do. What's the solution to the problem of evil? Well, under rationalism and materialism, it's us. It's something that we can do. And then as, as humanity struggles with that same question of, of the problem of evil, Christians then come in announcing that the solution to the problem of evil is that Jesus was nailed to a cross in the first century and actually took on and absorbed that evil. And, and, and now evil is being flipped on its head and people are being set free from sin and the power of Satan and the power of evil uh, through this gospel, through the power of Jesus. But as we announce that, we have to recognize that the host culture, these rational materialists kind of shudder. They're saying, oh, wow, we really don't like that. That really grinds against our narrative and our worldview. Why do we need all of that blood and guts and sacrifice and crucifixion and the wrath of God falling on somebody and someone else dying in my place? It just it just grinds uh, against the worldview that we've set up. It sounds uh, outdated and unnecessary. It's foolishness to them. It's a stumbling block for people who are embedded in that worldview. And so churches will literally cut out the cross and resurrection in response to this pressure. And again, there are entire churches and entire church movements that essentially become social justice clubs. They exist to carry out some uh, vision of Christian justice and to do good deeds in the world that rationalism would approve of, but there isn't much left of their gospel. It's kind of been, um, it's all on, on the cutting room floor, so to speak. There's no, there's no crucifixion. There's no resurrection. And Paul would say, if he were alive today, he would look at many of these churches and church movements and he would say, I am astonished uh, 
that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to, con- trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And, and that reaction, that uh, assessment, is as true today as it ever was. Here and now, in 2020, we face pressure to abandon the miracles of Christ and even the resurrection because it doesn't line up with rationalism and materialism. We face pressure to abandon the atoning death of Christ in our place for our sin, for the sin of the world, because for someone else to die for me as the solution for evil grinds against rationalism, that human beings might be part of the problem, but we're definitely the answer and we can fix our own problems. We face pressure to abandon the biblical worldview on marriage and sexuality, which is so under fire in our age. We believe that sexual intimacy is reserved for a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. Well, that there's pressure to abandon that in the sake of getting along with the culture. We face pressure to abandon the biblical view of gender, which says that both men and women are fully made in the image of God, that we beautifully embody different aspects of who God is, and that gender is real, that it's objective, that it's from God, and that it's a good thing. Well, wouldn't it be easier if we were just abandon those things, if we just shifted our view a little bit, if we were willing to throw out some of that stuff, surely it's outdated. Surely we can give up these pieces. And if we do, then we're free to get along with the culture in a new way. Wouldn't that allow the gospel to run free and uninhibited? Wouldn't that allow loads of new people uh, to come to Jesus? And so we, we have pressure against us on all of these things. But all, regardless of what the subject is, uh, the pressure and our response follows these same patterns. We are tempted to compromise the gospel in order to please people. And that pressure that we face is real. And many people and many churches and even whole denominations cave to that pressure. They say, for the same reason that the Galatians would have been tempted to cave. They say, wow, if we can just bend a little bit, we'd avoid all of this uh, tension and pressure and we could get on as we used to. Uh, Surely, if we adopt a little legalism, the Galatians would have said, all the Jews will leave us alone. Surely, if we adopt a little materialism in 2020, uh, but keep Jesus as our teacher, then the gospel would explode, right? I mean, surely if we could ditch gender or uh, the biblical sex ethic, if we could set aside some of the things that scripture says about, the, about those topics, if we could remove these stumbling blocks that people keep tripping over, then the gospel could move forward uninhibited and wouldn't loads of new people come to know Jesus. And Paul says, Forget about it. 
If you cave to that pressure, if you bend to every cultural preference, then by the time you arrive at the public square, you won't have much of a gospel left to announce. Uh, it'll, it'll be um, so watered down that it'll become a different gospel, which Paul says really is no gospel at all. Why? Well, it's because you're trying to please people. And we can justify all of these shifts and changes by saying, hey, it's all in the name of advancing the kingdom. If we can just give up some of these minor issues, if we can tweak the gospel a little bit, and, and then we can move forward. And surely the kingdom will advance much more freely if it gets along with the culture. But in reality, though we justify it through kingdom advance sometimes, uh, that what act, what's actually happening is that we are afraid of people and we're afraid of what people will think of us if we don't change, if we don't compromise. And so Paul's rhetorical question to himself can actually be turned on us. Paul can actually ask of us that same question. Hey, are you trying to please people or are you living for God alone? Um, who do you live to please. And I think for many of us, if we actually take time to ponder those questions, if we actually uh, sort of begin to sort ourselves out before God, what we'll find in our hearts is actually a bizarre mix of motives. Uh, most of us, if we're honest, aren't living to please God alone. In fact, most people, if as we search our hearts before God, one of the first things we'll find is that a lot of us are actually living in some sense to please our parents. Uh, even if our parents weren't very good parents, uh, even if our parents uh, have already passed away and they're not alive anymore, much of what we do uh, and what we're trying to prove to ourselves and others could be born out of saying, hey, I want to prove that what my parents thought about me or said about me is true. Or the reverse, I want to really prove that what they said uh, is not true. Uh, many of us, especially if we're young, are actually living to please uh, for the approval of the friends that we find around us. We're, we're living to please our friends, whether that's in person or on social media. And so we're guided by the sense that we need to be accepted by them. We need their approval. We need them to like us. We need them to literally hit the like button and affirm us uh, online. We need to prove that we're one of them, uh, that we're on the inside, that we get it, that we're, that we're hip, that we're cool, that we're acceptable, that we belong, that we're good enough to be one of them. How many uh, of us, especially when we're young, are driven by that motive? Because each one of us, regardless of our age, has this driving desire to belong. It is hardwired into us, this desire to be loved, this desire to be respected, to be accepted, this desire to do the right things so that we can fit in with the crowd. We want to prove ourselves uh, to those around us, to have the affirmation of the world. But the problem is that a lot of the time, our friend groups or the crowds or the culture that we find ourselves in are naturally set against the gospel. 
And so by trying to please one, we're naturally going to want to compromise the other. If we live for the approval of human beings, then our life before God and the gospel message that we carry will actually be very vulnerable and open to compromise. We will end up living in fear of others and what they think. And this, uh, this fear, this motive can guide us so powerfully that it can come to dominate our lives. In the Proverbs, it says, fear of man will prove to be a snare. And that's proven true over the centuries. It's a trap. It's a snare. It stifles our walk with Jesus. In fact, uh, during his earthly life and ministry, we see in the life of Jesus that many, even among the Jewish leaders, believed in him. So people within the established Judaism are coming to faith. They had faith in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And I think to some extent, that was the Jewish fear or even the fear that some of the Galatians had as they're trying to navigate this new faith. But in the same way, I think that's our fear. That's our problem. Many of us want to acknowledge Jesus behind closed doors in our hearts. But when it comes to the public arena, we, we want to guard our cards. We don't want anyone to know that we're followers of Jesus. For this same reason, we're afraid that we'll be put out. We don't want to be on the margins of our culture. We don't want to be on the margins of our friend group. It, there's such a deep human pain involved involved in that sort of rejection. And so we are desperate to communicate to our culture and those around us that we're not bigots, that we're not closed-minded, that we aren't backwards and we aren't outdated. And in fact, we are so desperate uh, oftentimes to prove this to them that we will compromise in an attempt to gain their respect and will justify it all in the name of advancing the kingdom because we can't stand the thought of being framed as the bad guy or the bigot. We can't stand the thought of being framed as the outdated, ignorant person. Uh, we don't like being uh, framed as, as the fly in the ointment, as the one who is reigning on the cultural parade or spoiling our culture's vision for human flourishing apart from God. But the problem is, Paul says, that the gospel will always be seen on the outset as foolishness to the Greeks and as a stumbling block to those who are in legalism or even legalistic traditions and religions. And we will always have pressure to conform, to, press, uh, to, to cave, to compromise, to shift and change the gospel and to make it more palatable to the culture in which we find ourselves. That temptation is always going to be there. That tension is always going to be there, which is why Jesus said, hey, just as the world has hated me, it's going to hate you too. You carry this beautiful message, this necessary message into a world that's perishing, that's dying, that's passing away. And this message can save them. It is the message of salvation. And yet you are, are, are going to be hated by 
the world. Uh, the solution to that tension, to that hatred, uh, isn't to compromise, Paul says. It's not to keep tweaking the gospel and keep removing stumbling blocks and trying to change what the scriptures say. Um, the solution is actually to get on in the power of the Spirit and uncompromised faithfulness to God. And, and to carry that gospel with integrity in an uncompromised way to the very heart and center of the culture and to see that culture changed by the transformation that this gospel brings. Some of you know my story and you know that um, I was saved out of a secular atheist background uh, into following the way. And when I first gave my life to Jesus, all of my friends were basically living that same secular atheist lifestyle. Uh, almost everyone around me, whether it was uh, my friends or my family or uh, every classroom that, of every school that I had been in, in every circle, I've, they were sort of in the world and of the world. They were operating with this natural antagonism toward Jesus and the gospel. And so from the very beginning, for me, there was always this pressure to be silent. There was always this pressure uh, to conform. There was always this pressure to water things down or to let go of that outdated stuff that we have no need for anymore. There was always that pressure to compromise. And so early on, I really resonated and still to some degree resonate with this fear of man, with this fear of what others might think. And, and as followers of Jesus, we have to wake up to this pressure, to this tension. We have to name it. We have to label it. And especially in my early days, I regularly had to pray against it. I had to pray that this fear of man would be broken. I had to pray that, that, in the, that I would step fully into the grace and freedom of the gospel, that all of my thinking would shift from pleasing people, which is what dominated my life before Jesus. I lived for the approval of others. I hated offending people. I loved pleasing people. That was part of my motivation for life and the things that I did. And now all of a sudden, everything had to change. I had to regularly pray, Lord, would you break the fear of man? Would I move forward, as Paul says, and, and proclaim the gospel fearlessly as I should? And so as we close this morning, I just want to pray that over us uh, to um, encourage us to be just encouraging one another to keep integrity of our faith, to keep the integrity of the gospel, to move forward knowing that Jesus and Paul and everyone else, all the writers of the New Testament have said, you will face resistance. The world has set itself up since the garden, since the Tower of Babel, resistant to Jesus and this message. But you can continue on in the power of the Spirit. And as you carry that gospel with integrity in to the center of the culture, it's actually the culture that's going to change as they see Jesus for who he is. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you that you were not content uh, to stay in this place of beauty and blessing in the heavenly realms, but you decided to step into this world uh, to expose yourself to its uh, to its shaming, to its evil, to 
to everything that the world had to throw at you, Jesus, that you uh, took it into yourself and turned evil on its head. And now we have this gospel message, this you and Galeon to carry into the world. And as we do, Lord, we know that the, the world will always present us with opportunities to compromise, with pressure to compromise. It will always sort of frame us as the bad guy. And yet in the midst of it, Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't lose our saltiness. You say, hey, once salt has lost its saltiness, what, what good is it? And we are supposed to go out uh, as salt and light into a dying world. And I just think of the way that salt flavors and salt preserves. And so I pray, Lord, that we would flavor the culture that we find ourselves in and that we would bring this preserving message of salvation into the, it, despite the pressure, despite, despite the stigma, despite everything that the world would throw at us. Uh, Lord, in the power of the Spirit, would we move forward and proclaim this euangelion without fear, freed from sin, freed from the law, freed from the fear of what others would think, free to operate purely to please you for an audience of one. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.